Welcome to the Buddha Sasana Podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Austin, Texas. Today we want to talk about formations. To cognize a world, or even an object, action, or event within that world requires a long string of conceptual decisions. For instance, suppose in one of our comings or goings to and from home, certain new bright and pleasing shapes and colors appear. These are quickly perceived as balloons attached to Biff and Mildred's fence across the street. On the basis of social conventions, we cognize an immediate and imminent festive event. The next day, the emergence of a young child from a car is perceived along with the brightly colored box in his hands, with bow affixed. A birthday party is presumed, in fact, little Wilbur's birthday party. Proliferation of thoughts about birthday parties past ensue, including the recollection of a shopping bag of leftover party favors on a shelf in her closet. A conditioning link potentially satisfying our persistent craving to ingratiate ourselves as intended. And as craving spreads down that link and pools around this recollection, cognizance descends to that new side anew, and the intention is formulated to bring that bag to Biff and Mildred as a contribution to the merriment. And so we do. Each conceptual or inferential step, and there are many hundreds, if not thousands, unmentioned in this scenario, is a formation. Formations are conceptual choices that are generally enabled by dispositions. They are choices that is volitional because they admit of alternative perceptions or intentions. They're enabled by dispositions because they depend on a lot of background experience, a huge amount, about how to deal with specific kinds of situations that arise, notions about how the world works, of what birds and bunnies look like, of what televisions, scissors, or books are for, of what emotive or karmic responses are socially appropriate in given situations, of which the roles of the self are, of what kinds of actions a given goal calls for, of what things are worth feeling, craving, and appropriating, of what potential obstacles things pose towards our intentions, and so on. Such dispositions are learned by habituation. Formations are the building blocks of the world, the Legos of the mind. The Pali word for formations, Sankara, is sometimes translated into English as volitional formations, dispositions, preparations, activities, or simply choices. The word means literally put together, indicative 
of the productivity and presumptiveness of formations. The word in Pali apparently also carries a connotation of spuriousness or deception. Because of their volitional character, formations are often equated with chaitana, sangchaitana, or kamma, each of which belongs to the general semantic field of volition or intention, but is likely to occur in a context slightly different from the others. I've translated chaitana, a name factor in our discussion of name and form, as intention, which refers potentially to an elaborate plan or a long-aspired goal. An intention would be constituted of formations, which tend to be small and recurrent enough to be habituated into dispositions, while intentions tend to be compounded and one-off. Formations seem closer to sangchetana in this sense. Discussion of kamma, Sanskrit karma, volitional action, has been noticeably thin, but is closely aligned with formations, from which it finds itself injected into the downstream links. In fact, formations are the choices that constitute perceptions or intentions, as well as feelings, contact, attention, and cognizance itself. For instance, perception of a particular person is conditioned by formations that are habituated through previous encounters of that person. An intention of self-nourishment is conditioned by perception of spoon and pudding and a familiarity with that recurrent situation. A particular sequence of sounds is put together to produce a chickadee. Formations produce everything from recognition of simple things we encounter to engineering feats built step-by-step from simpler formative structures. Everything cognizable is constituted through formations, for cognizance produces it all, from roads to greed, all of the khandas, samsara itself. Anything seen, heard, sensed, or cognized is composed of sankara. We are creatures of habit, both conceptual and behavioral. Formations as the origin of cognizance. Without formations, there is no conceptualization. Without conceptualization, there would be no cognizance, nor any cognitive event, no name, no aggregates, except for maybe form at a bare ghost level. They, formations, construct condition form as form. They construct condition feeling as feeling. They construct condition perception as perception. They construct condition formations as formations. They construct condition cognizance as cognizance. In particular, cognizance works its magic through formations, much as a magician creates presumptions through props and sleights of hand. Nyanananda points out the magician's instruments 
would have been called Sankara in Pali, as would the spectator's expectations that they subvert. A magician presents activities on stage in such a manner that each spectator is conscious of a reality that just cannot be. The magician has a scantily clad assistant lie in a box, saws the box in half, and the assistant emerges unscathed. How can that be? The answer is that the spectator has perceived what he sees on stage according to certain dispositions learned without the props. But the magician has utilized props and sleights of hand that serve to defy those expectations through false bottoms, mirrors, black curtains, and so on, conditions for perception not apparent to the spectator. Formations are what we see when we view name and form, cognizance, intentions, and aggregates at a high level of resolution, the level of individual predisposed cognitive decisions, much as water droplets are what we see when we view clouds more closely. Therefore, just as cognizance produces growth of name and form, By extension, it produces growth of formations. This is reflected in passages such as the following. Wherever cognizance becomes established and comes to growth, there is descent of name and form. Where there is descent of name and form, there is the growth of formations. Formations are the stuff of cognizance, both as site of descent and as product of growth. Formations, much as words or jigsaw puzzle pieces, carry content and when assembled carry the deeper content of cognizance events. The Sundry Facets of Formations Let's take a few moments to appreciate the richness of the content of formations. Alongside perceptions of how the world is, formations can carry intentions aimed at making the world different. In between the two, it can provide meanings, values, and anticipations, which both assess the world and critically influence our actions. Let's take a simple flower as an example. A flower is physical and has physical properties, size, color, smell, freshness. Recall that most of these properties are substantially projections of mind that get objectified as out there along with everything else. But a flower is even more than that. It has value, symbolizes something, has cultural meaning, and is loaded with widely recognized possibilities for action. We can smell a flower, marvel at it, cut it or pick it, collect it into a carefully arranged bouquet, which can then be given to a loved one or to the sick or newly departed, in accord with culturally conveyed dispositions that attach to flowers. Furthermore, we can anticipate that the flower will wilt, and certain dispositions give us an array of means to forestall that inevitability. A wide range of such formations concerning flowers is likely to arise with the cognizance of the flower, 
they define what it is to be a flower. And some may introduce objects that may become sites for further elaboration, such as flower gives rise to craving non-wilt, gives rise to seeking base. Notice that almost any formation that arises depends on previous experience. We're predisposed to experience the realm of flowers in particular ways. We would not perceive a visual experience as a flower unless we had encountered flowers before. It would not occur to us to smell a flower nor begin cutting flowers into a bouquet had we not seen others doing that before. Cultural expectations around the giving of flowers and the particular role of flowers in the realm of romance or grief must have been learned. Formations that do not depend on dispositions would be conceptual choices that are exceptionally creative and imaginative. Without this extensive background of previous experience, such a simple thing as a flower would remain no more than a blurry form playing out in the eye and a pleasant odor in the nose. I like to visualize dispositions as free-floating templates that can be snapped into place as needed as cognizance builds the world. Certainly many formations are produced as candidates that do not make it into the final content of perception, intention, or cognizance. This is because formations typically arise as alternative hypotheses that must give way, where necessary, to a consistent, more comprehensive interpretation. Listeners have probably seen movies about killer robots in which the screen suddenly shifts to the robot's point of view. Yellow lines and numbers appear over the visual field, assessing dimensions, testing different parameters and other features of the environment, and finally blinking on and off with the achievement of a consistent positive interpretation. These yellow lines and numbers are formations. Each formation is a conceptual nugget of presumed content. The domain of flowers is rich in content. We've barely touched here on all that is required to successfully cognize within that realm. Similarly complex are the domains of eating, dinner, house cleaning, writing this book, playing poker, sitting down to meditate, driving a car, and on and on. A TV Western would hardly make sense unless the trappings of the Wild West, saloons, general store, dusty streets, gunslingers, crooked tycoons, jails, and lynch mobs, white hats, and the extreme oddity of the showdown, all well-worn cliches, were not already thoroughly habituated through previous consumption of that genre. Habituation. Dispositions is the preferred translation of Sankara for many authors, though new formations are more aptly considered to be the application of old dispositions to present cognition. Formations are conditioned by their own habituation. They are learned or unlearned. 
This is immediately significant for our practice, for the actions of body, speech, and mind are developed through the deconditioning of our unskillful habits and through the habituation of skillful habits. We saw some examples of the process of habituation in an earlier talk in connection with habit patterns, which are regarded as undesirable dispositions, classified under the following seven types, lust, aversion, views, doubt, conceit, becoming, and ignorance. Habit patterns, anusaya, is often translated as obsession, tendency, or disposition, and reflects the dispositional aspects of formations as conditioning factors in present cognizance. They are broad in range, but do not seem to exhaust the range of formations. I might mention fermentations, asawa, which seem to be the most fundamental kinds of dispositions, such that eliminating them constitutes awakening. With regard to perception, consider how a bird watcher becomes very adept at accurately identifying many species of birds over time. That's a red-winged blackbird, is a formation. In order for that formation to arise, the bird watcher will have to learn early on that a red-winged blackbird is black, smaller than a crow, and has red bars on its wings, before she would identify her first red-winged blackbird. The perception of each of these three features is also a formation. Through a series of such identifications, such formations will begin to arise effortlessly and habitually for the bird watcher. The disposition toward identifying a red-winged blackbird, certainly alongside a plethora of other species, will develop and strengthen. This disposition is likely to become so habituated that the simplest movement in a tree or a flash of color suffices for the appropriate formation to kick in. We've all gone through many similar learning processes in many different domains. With regard to intention, consider an occasion in which someone does not satisfy some need we might know. With regard to intention, consider an occasion in which someone does not satisfy some need we might have, and as a result, anger arises. We decide to reciprocate through a clever plan, cobbled together from formations. I know, I'll subvert his innately necessitated harmonious social relations through malicious slander and backbiting. Ha ha! The next time a similar situation arises, we remember how successful this plan was in the past, so we adapt it to the new situation, keeping the relevant formational structure. After a while, we find this template has developed and become a well-established disposition, activated in a variety of similar irksome contexts, and applied with the barest thought. This pattern will have evolved from a creatively constructed intention into a disposition. One of the Buddha's discourses featured Puna, a dog-duty ascetic, 
whose practice was to curl up like a dog, to eat food on the floor, to move on all fours, and so on. Puna apparently expected that, by this virtue or observance or asceticism or holy life, I shall become a great god or some lesser god. The Buddha corrected Puna's presumption. Here, Puna, someone develops the dog duty fully and uninterruptedly. He develops the dog habit fully and uninterruptedly. He develops the dog mind fully and uninterruptedly. He develops dog behavior fully and uninterruptedly. Having done so on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in the company of dogs. All Puna will achieve is an even more established disposition for canine behavior, which he will carry with him right into the circumstances of the next life. I find it helpful to think of formations as shaping a landscape by driving an ox cart. Hither and thither, the wheels create ruts depending on our choices, and the tracks are dispositions. Even while we make choices, the wheels are disposed to falling into old ruts, particularly into the deepest ruts. When the wheels follow established ruts, those ruts become even deeper and wider. If we let the ox decide which way to go, we're barely cognizant that we are doing anything at all. Unfortunately, these ruts are most typically the products of an unskillful, fruitless search for personal advantage and likely to perpetuate themselves as such into the future until proper practice unlearns them. However, we can at any time, with diligence, steer toward open ground to begin a new rut or to choose the rut least traveled on. This is what we do in Buddhist practice. Dispositions tend to nudge us into ruts that allow us to go heedlessly into autopilot and make it ever more difficult to do otherwise. It's through our actions that we shape our formational landscape and shape our character. Through our deliberate actions that we remake our landscape, reshape our character, and learn to experience the world otherwise. It's through Buddhist practice that we reshape our mental landscape to liberate us from the most problematic of our habituated ruts. We probably want to choose the ruts of neither dog nor scoundrel. The mind is the basis of all of our practice. All of our actions begin in the mind. Whether we adhere to precepts or choose to earn merit, they come from the mind, and they then reshape our mental landscape. The Buddha describes this process of strengthening dispositions. Whatever a monk keeps pursuing with his thinking and pondering, that becomes the inclination of his awareness. Bhikkhus, whatever a bhikkhu frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of his mind. 
If he frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of sensual desire, he has abandoned the thought of renunciation to cultivate the thought of sensual desire. And then his mind inclines to thoughts of sensual desire. If he frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of ill will, upon thoughts of cruelty, he has abandoned the thought of non-cruelty to cultivate the thought of cruelty. And then his mind inclines to thoughts of cruelty. So let's stop here for this week. Next week, we'll examine karma in terms of formation.